few years ago, we were able to travel to Jerusalem. One of the places that we visited in Jerusalem was a fascinating place. It was a church. It was the church of St. Peter Gillikin II. And under, under the church, uh, underneath the church, uh, over the probable, uh, the church was built over the probable site of uh, the palace of Caiaphas. Uh, there, are, there, there are remains of 5th century shrine with Christian markings on the walls, including seven Byzantine crosses. Now, on a lower level than that, there's a network of 1st century caves. And one of, the, one of them is known as the Sacred Pit. And here, early Christians believed that Jesus was confined there the night before he, was di- before he died. In the 1st century, there were no stairs going down into that pit. The prisoners were lowered by a leather harness down into the dark uh, pit, into this dungeon. So when we visited, there were group, other groups. And they, we, we came on buses, and we, we waited upstairs, and then we made our way back to the narrow passage where we could go down into this pit and have a little brief worship service. But other groups were ahead of us. And the groups that went down into that little pit were, were groups of Christians from all over the world. The group immediately ahead of us were African Christians. And they went solemnly down into the pit for their worship service. And we listened to them and we couldn't understand the word they said. But we could understand their faces, their beautiful black faces, as they came up that narrow passage and they passed us with tears streaking their face, tears of devotion to the Lord. And then we went down into the pit. It's what we noticed all over. Wherever we went, there were people there from India. There were people there from Africa. There were, were people there from Europe. There, there were people there from uh, all the places around the globe. There were Korean Christians and other Asian Christians. There were Japanese Christians, and there were probably even some Michiganders there. In November of 1990, a construction uh, crew working in the area there accidentally broke into a burial cave that had been sealed for 2,000 years. Within were 12 ossuaries, bone boxes, if you will, one of which was exquisitely decorated and had obviously belonged to a person of wealth and high rank. Inscribed on this box in two places was a name, Caiaphas. Inside... Among other remains, there were the bones of a 60-year-old man. Other inscriptions made it clear this was indeed the family resting place of the man who handed over the Son of God to death. Caiaphas was so powerful then, and, and now all but forgotten. But Jesus, who may have been lowered into that pit, he is beloved here in this room tonight by you and by me and all across our state, and all across our nation, and on the other side of the world, all over the world tonight. Jesus is the, he's the cosmopolitan Christ. He's having wide national appeal. And and beyond that, Jesus is, is not just known and loved in other nations of the world, but he's the king of the universe. And as we gather here, 
uh, tonight, our humble gathering of really just a few people. There are gatherings all over the world tonight, all over the face of the earth. People are standing tonight and have stood today quietly, reverently, gratefully at the foot of the cross. And they've sung and they've prayed and they've wept and they've read sacred scripture. He is the cosmopolitan Christ. There, there was a sign over his head when he died. It was common to put a sign of accusation over the head of a criminal. It, was a, it wasn't a title. It was an indictment. And the sign over Jesus' head that was placed there in mockery was written in three languages. Jesus, probably at the cross, better than anywhere else, we can see the cosmopolitan nature of who Jesus is. There were three languages. They all, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. A lot of Christians all over the earth revere the cross. I like to look in Romans in chapter 3, and those few chapters in Romans 3 to 8, there are a significant number of reasons, among others, why people around the world would stand in reverence and awe and thanksgiving at the foot of the cross. Because the cross is a place of justification. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 says, those who believe that Jesus died, who believe and confess that Jesus died for their sins, are justified as in the great courtroom of God, they're right with God. And that's why we would stand in reverence and awe and thanksgiving at the foot of the cross because those who stand there in belief and confession of Christ are justified. And because it's a place of redemption, verse 24, in the second part of verse 24, it says we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That never gets old. I said that, that redemption, as you, you've heard me teach before, is a, is a word with a story behind it. And the story has a setting, as every story does. And the setting is the marketplace. And the things that are bought and sold, are, along with the wares of, and food and so forth, are people, slaves. And you and I, is as if we were slaves in, in the great marketplace. And God, through the blood of his son Jesus shed on the cross, paid the ransom for us. So we're not only justified in the great court of God, were redeemed in the marketplace of God. So we stand at the foot of the cross with hearts that are thankful and that are grateful because we're justified, because we're redeemed. In chapter 3 and verse 25, it says this, whom God put forward, talking about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. When by faith we believe that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sin, the wrath of God is satisfied. God, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. That's the propitiation word. Of course we would, we would kneel in awe at the foot of the cross and thanksgiving at the foot of the cross, knowing that that sense that we have that we're not right with God and his anger is justified, is satisfied altogether in Jesus and not because of what we've done. That's the Christian message. So it isn't surprising that millions of people would 
consider him dear would gather at the foot of his cross. It's a place of justification. It's a place of redemption. It's a place of propitiation. It's a place of imputation where the wealth of, of Jesus is put on our account and our sin was put on his account as in a great counting house. That's in chapter 4 and verses 5 and 8 in, in Romans. Listen to it. And to one who does not work but trust in him who justifies, that's the justification word again, the ungodly, one who does not work but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted, it's imputed as righteousness. It's put onto his account. So on our account, we have, even though we have sinned, our sin's gone on his account, his righteousness has gone on our account. Can it even be? Isn't it amazing? Isn't that a story? Have you told anybody that lately? I, what a story. What an, if that's true, what an amazing thing to be true, a person might think. But millions of people know it's true, and us among them. And, that, and so we're here tonight, and we're saying to the Lord, thank you that I can say I'm justified in the high court of God. I'm redeemed in the market, out of the slave market. I'm, uh, God's wrath is just wrath against me that I deserve. The shameful things that I've done, I don't have to pay for. Jesus paid for them. And he's put on righteousness on my account that I didn't have. Took sin, my son, his account, that he didn't sin. And then we were enemies of God. And if you want to be an enemy of someone, you don't want to be an enemy of God. But chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For while we were enemies, we're reconciled to God. How, is that, how does that work? By the death of his son, Romans 5 and 10. How are we reconciled with God? You have a sense of, I'm not right with God. I'm an enemy of God. I'm not a friend of God. We're reconciled to God, only can be reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so, of course, with millions of other people around the world, we sing our favorite songs, our songs about uh, the cross, our favorite songs to hear, to listen to. Can you imagine the hours of rehearsal that went into what we've already heard tonight? the devotion of the musicians, the hours and hours of, of rehearsal. And, and, we, and we, would, we, might, we might do that just for the beauty of music, but isn't there a different level altogether when the music is about Jesus? Isn't there just a different level altogether? There are silly songs, there are love songs, those are not to be depreciated, but then there are the songs about Jesus that we never tire of singing, and they do something for us. <laughs> of course we sing at the foot of the cross because we're justified redeemed the wrath of god is satisfied we've had his righteousness imputed to us we're reconciled to god we're his friends and we've been adopted into the most amazing family ever chapter 8 and verse 14 listen to what paul wrote in romans chapter 8 and and verse 13 if you live according to the flesh you'll die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh body you live for all who are led by the are the sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, and legitimately sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness that we're the children of God. We're the children of God. How can we be the children of God? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so because of what Jesus did on the cross, this is a little handful, this little cluster of things from here in Romans, they thrill me. 
The, the, the cross is a place of justification. The cross is a place of redemption. The cross is a place of propitiation. The cross is a place of imputation. The cross is a place of reconciliation. The cross is a place of adoption. And that's just the beginning. That's just a little handful. It's a little cluster of things that are true because we believe and confess that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we've been then adopted into a family that's actually better than a human family. As wonderful as human families are. Think about the family of God. Have you thought about it? It's a loving family. God is our father. Christ is our brother. It's a large family. There are people all over the world that we're related to. You ever have that experience? You go somewhere you've never been before. You run into somebody who's a believer, and it's like you pick up where you left off even though you didn't know them before because they're in your family. It's a very wealthy and privileged family because we have all the inheritance of Christ, the riches of Christ, but it's also a very virtuous uh, family with many good traits and a generous family that's very giving. Family of God is a giving you know, family. All over the earth are things that have been started because Jesus died on the cross and because people knelt there in belief and then they wanted to go out and do some good works for God and then they started schools and churches and orphanages and all kinds of good things because we live in, we, we, we've been adopted into a, a wealthy, privileged family, spiritually wealthy, virtuous family with many good traits, according to the Bible. A generous family. A family that's rich in history. It goes way, way back. And we never can tell all the stories that there are to tell about the family that we're in. And it's a forever family that will literally never end. All of that because one man, God's son Jesus, came to earth and suffered on the cross on that good friday so we join people from all over all over the earth it's no wonder that people from all over the earth gather in awe and wonder and sober quietness and love and loyalty it's no wonder that people give it's no wonder that people write songs it's no wonder that people write poetry no wonder that people reach out to other people in love. It's no wonder that people forgive one another because of what Jesus did on the cross. At the cross, I believe and I'm justified. At the cross, I'm redeemed. I'm re at the cross, I'm saved from the wrath of God. At the cross, I have the righteousness of Christ on my account, my sin on his. At the cross, I'm reconciled and adopted into the family of God. And because of that, I have a new family. And that's why there's no, no matter where in the world you are, no matter where in the world you've been, no matter where in the world you've come from, no matter where in the world you're going, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And he's the cosmopolitan Christ. Do you remember this story that Jesus went to the mountain to meet his disciples? I'm getting ahead of myself just ever so a little bit. After the resurrection, Jesus went ahead of his disciples and he met on a mountain in Galilee with them. He had arranged that meeting. It's the last little cluster. It's the last little story in the beautiful gospel of Matthew. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he had a, a, a word for his disciples. Sometimes we skip it when we quote this passage. It's common to skip it. There's a little phrase we skip over sometimes. Go into all the world, he says, and make disciples. And then we often say, baptizing them in the name of the Father. What did I skip? Anybody know? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. You see the theme? 
It's from the beginning to the end. He's Jesus all over the world, all over the universe. See a cos, cosmopolitan, cosmic Jesus. You can't, he's not a localized deity. He's not a small G God. You can't tame him and use him for your purposes. He's very God and very God. And because he, he died on the cross, he, he rules the earth. There'd be no redemption without him. There'd be no reconciliation without him. There'd be no uh, friendship with God without him. There'd be no adoption of the family of God without what he did on the cross. We'd still be so in our sins. Then, if you allow, remember the day of Pentecost. We kind of moving through the chronology of things. Remember the day of Pentecost recorded there in, in Acts. And just for a, a moment, a glimpse forward. And it's during the Passover, and Dr. Luke makes it clear in Acts that there are people there with a multitude of languages, and miraculously, God arranges through the power of the Holy Spirit for the people to hear the message spoken in their own language. So they could take it back to other people in the nations. Oh, how God loves the people of all tongues, all colors, and all cultures. He's not a small G God, not a local deity. He's cosmopolitan. Is Dr. Muhammad in the house tonight? Doctor, are you here? Would you come in? Oh, yeah, join me up here, would you? So I've asked, uh, this young lady is a doctor in, in our community. She's at Henry Ford, and uh, she is, I want to say intern. That's not right. It's, um, yes, she's an intern. And um, she's come to Bethel and intends Bethel. Would you hold this for a minute? And she's from Indonesia. And when she came to my study, I, I asked her, I, her name is Danelle Muhammad. And I said, there are a lot of Muslims in Indonesia, and your name is Muhammad. Are you a Christian? And she said, I am. And I said, with a name like Muhammad, how did you become a Christian? And she's going to talk to you about that tonight. Hi, everyone. Good night. Um, actually, where my family is from, we're from uh, Trinidad instead. Um, and yes. I think I told you another story about that. Okay. We may have gotten across Sorry about a little that. bit, but that's okay. <laughs> My um, geography's a little <laughs> bit local. Yeah, and Pastor Ken just asked me to kind of give um, my family's testimony tonight. So we come from a long line of Hindus, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but um, Hindus are, we're very much into, I guess, what the Bible would describe, and it is pagan worship. You kind of have um, these pictures of things that you worship, and you make these uh, actual like clay figurines and so on, and we worship them, kind of like, I guess, the golden calf worship in the Bible. So it came from a long line of family members that was like that. We had uh, our house in the Caribbean, and then we had a very small temple that was built on the outside with all these various figurines and pictures and so on that we would go and like worship and always just looking for God, and we just, we had no idea that that's not where God was, but... We would go there and worship all the time. We'd been doing this for years and years and years, and everything was completely fine. And then my mom said, she was like, you know what? I feel really compelled to go buy a picture of, uh, of Christ. And it's kind of how it is with Hindus. Like, we pretty much used to worship everything back then. Like, Buddhism, you can get a picture of Buddha. You can get a picture of Christ. You can get a picture of anything pretty much would go. So she got this picture of what well, we thought Christ looked like. Um, she put it up in the temple, and for years and years, we had been lighting these little things called diyas. They're basically 
kind of like candles that are made out of like oil instead and you, you light them and you worship, you put flowers and you do the whole nine. So she'd been doing this for a really long time. We all had been doing it for a really long time. Right after she had bought that picture of Christ and she lit one of these candles, it would stay lit pretty much like all night and it would be totally fine. It was a temple that was separate from our actual house. The day after she bought um, the picture of Christ, the whole thing basically burned to the ground. And the whole thing burned to the ground except for that picture of Christ, which was really just very prominent in the middle of it. It was like, this is the weirdest thing ever. I'm sorry, I don't mean to like tear up, but it always um, brings tears to my eyes when I think of it. And that everything burned to the ground except for that one picture. And God just knew at that time, like my family, how much we looked for him, how much we searched for him. And we just, we did not know. We really didn't know who he was or anything. But he knew at that point in time to get to us, the only way we would be able to relate was to see a physical representation of him. So he allowed that to happen. Even though it was against his word, he just allowed yeah. it to happen. After that, like my mom, she got this like strong feeling to kind of just look throughout the entire house and find all these things we used to worship and she just got rid of them. Like all overnight, she just got rid of them. After that, she became saved. Um, and this is from a long line of Hindus. And then my dad didn't really help the situation. He came from a long line of Muslims too. So we just, we were just really didn't know. So she became saved. Shortly after that, um, my grandfather got saved. After that, my dad got saved. Then my aunt got saved. My uncle, her husband, a couple of my mom's other sisters, myself, um, my brother is now married to a Christian girl. He's still taking his time coming to the Lord, but slowly but surely he's getting there. But the whole point of it really is just to show that God, he always meets us at the point that we're at. Always, always meets us at the point that we're at. And just to really and truly be here and to feel that and to share this story with you guys and embarrass myself and cry on stage. <laughs> I just... For anybody out there that needs that encouragement, he's always there. He always hears us. He's the only God that there is. I'm like, Amen. if anybody could ever attest to that, mm. it's my family and I. I could have never dreamt this in a million years, but it happened. And I'm so glad because he saved my soul. He saved my family's soul. And we'll all get to be in heaven with him one day. And Amen. we're just, we're so grateful for that. Bless you. Good. Thank you, guys. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Some of you have gotten to know Danelle, and Danelle, thank you so much for your testimony tonight. I said to her, when people in that part of the world come to know the Lord, you, you hear stories about God working in miraculous ways and dreams sometimes and visions, unusual things. And, and uh, uh, Ken, you and I were talking about that. Ken said, that happened in my family, and they were in Indiana. <laughs> and, uh, and so just can you imagine, Danelle, thank you again for your testimony. Uh, what a powerful, uh, encouraging reminder tonight that Jesus Christ is not a local deity. He is a cosmopolitan Jesus. He is a cosmic Jesus. From all over the world, people love him. At the great white throne judgment, it's recorded there in Matthew 25, there'll be a great, great judgment someday, and, and, and we tend during Holy Week especially during Easter to kind of beg people to follow Jesus like he's a 97-pound weakling and he needs our supports. 
Oh, please come back again next week, if you will, please. If you don't have anything better to do, if you don't have a cabin up north or a team to follow or a kid playing ball or something like that. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Listen to Matthew 25, 31, 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on a glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, all the nations. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And then in chapter 25, verse 41, it says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He's, uh, he has the right to command, to demand the loyalty of everyone on earth. And then if we go forward to the end of our Bibles, if we were to turn to the very end of our Bibles, and we were to look in this beautiful passage and scene in heaven in Revelation 7, there's a scene from the very last book of the Bible pointing to heaven at the end of time. This is Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing before, around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And they said, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes, and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How many of you tonight are thankful that you have a Redeemer? Say, hallelujah, praise the Lamb. Hallelujah. Let's think about that tonight. A song, and then another song, and then another prayer, and then we'll be on our way. Let us stand. Let us stand as we sing together. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God. Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, Almighty oh Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, name of all. 
Giving us your song and leaving your spirit till the work on earth is
Would you please stand? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immoral, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.